Lord, we do come before you and worship and adore you. We think on the fact that our Savior died for us. And Lord, as we come this day and remember and commemorate the day that our Lord rode into Jerusalem, we ask, Father, that you would open this text up to us. That we might once again be overwhelmed at the story of your grace in our lives. Give us truth, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we get ready to go to this text this morning, I want to put your mind into the, where I'm going to try to take us today. So I want you to think back to the very beginning of not just the Christian story, but of all stories. The very beginning. I want you to think about Adam and Eve and that picture we have of them walking with God in the garden, basking in His glory, rejoicing to be with Him. They have no shame. They're anchored in His perfect approval. They're anchored in His acceptance of them. They just love being with Him. They feel His love. And what's the first thing that they do after the fall, after they've lost that approval, after they've lost that acceptance? What's the first thing that they do? If you remember, they hide. They feel shame for the first time ever. They're no longer anchored in God's approval, they're no longer anchored in God's acceptance. Now, that sounds like modern, psychological, touchy-feely language, doesn't it? To use words like approval and acceptance. But it's not. I just described to you the biblical idea of righteousness. Righteousness in Scripture is relational. It's the idea of acceptance in God's presence. Righteousness is the idea of having approval in God's sight. And in the fall, Adam and Eve lost that. And all humanity with, with them lost that positive verdict, that acceptance, that approval. It's lost. It's gone. And what that's done to us, that's left us with, a, a, we'll call it a glory thirst, a a hunger to have that approval, that acceptance, to be with God again. And and that desire shows in our life. We want to matter. We want some other party, somebody to say, we are valuable, we're significant, I approve you, I accept you. And that desire for that verdict over our life, that desire for that kind of approval is exactly what this text is about today we're going to look at. Now today is Palm Sunday. This is the day we celebrate Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the waving of palm branches and the the declaring, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You might have noticed if you've read ahead that this is a a non-traditional Palm Sunday text. But I hope to show you how Jesus riding into Jerusalem is the key to you having restored this thirst for approval and acceptance in your life. So let's look together at God's Word. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I'll be reading from the ESV translation. <clears throat> he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, <clears throat> standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, 
or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Well, as you know, I like to kind of tell you where we're going to go today. And so I want to give you a sentence, kind of a theme for the sermon today to help you remember. It is this. Jesus comes down to approve us because we can't climb up to him. See, we're tempted to to climb up and to try to grasp acceptance. But the reality is that we're unable. And so we need to look to Jesus to bring us God's acceptance. And so let's walk through this parable looking for that together. The first question I want to ask of this text is, how are we convinced of our approval? How do we get that? Notice how Luke begins this parable, and Luke does this very often. He tells us in advance what the parable means. He tells us before he tells us the story, here's what the story is about. I love that. And it's about what? Those who trusted, those who were convinced, those who looked to their own righteousness instead of something else. Remember, righteousness is a relational term. This is not about weighing abstract principles on the scale and and then receiving a verdict. This is about being approved in a relationship. This is about being accepted in a relationship. And so what they're looking for is they're looking to themselves to get approval. They're looking to their activity to get God's acceptance. Those are kind of big words, boys and girls, approval and acceptance. I know my kids don't use them very often. I want to make sure we're all on the same page here. So let's look together at your translation of verse 9. It says this, Jesus told this story about people who thought they impressed God, and so they looked down on others who didn't impress God. See, boys and girls, has one of your brothers or sisters ever done something good? And then when your parents aren't looking, they give you that kind of little smirk, like, ha-ha, I'm better than you are. You know, Pastor Sean has a sister. I'm, I'm, I'm a little brother, and, and I gave her that look a lot. Maybe you've given that look to your sister or your brother. See, that's what's going on here. Jesus tells this story because there's people, boys and girls, who thought that they went to church enough that God liked them better than those people. Or, or they did what everybody said, and so God really liked them. And so they're kind of looking down on other people, giving them that, that little smirk, ha-ha, I'm better than you. And Jesus is going to show us, boys and girls, that's not good. You see, for all of us, not just the boys and girls, Jesus, Jesus tells this story about people who are so thirsty for glory, so hungry for God's approval that they think they found a way to do it by being very, very good. Okay, so there's two groups here then. Who are these two groups? And what do they look like? Verse 10 tells us there's a Pharisee and a tax collector. Let's make sure we understand who these people are, really, not the stereotype we may have in our mind. Pharisees are regular people. They're not usually official religious leaders. They're usually more what we would call lay people. They're very strict. They follow the rules. 
and they were fundamentalists, we might say, and they hated the Romans, the occupiers. Okay, we get that one. Tax collectors, this is a little different. This one's a little, a little unique. I want you to imagine that Visa and MasterCard were given the job of the IRS. And they were given the legal authority to charge you whatever kind of interest, whatever kind of late fees there were. And they, were, and they could charge you however much money they wanted. They contracted for the government. Let's say, okay, we expect you to get from Americans this year, we expect you to bring in $1.2 trillion. And they signed a contract saying, we will pay the U.S. government $1.2 trillion. They then had the legal authority to collect however much they want. They can collect $3 trillion, and the government will enforce it as long as they turn around and cut a check for $1.2 trillion to the government. That's how the Roman tax collection system worked. People would bid for a certain area and say, I will. Rome said, we want this much money from this area. Who will do it? We'll give you soldiers. And they would bid, and it would go to the highest bidder, and that person could collect as much money as they wanted as long as they gave Rome the agreed-upon amount, and they would pocket the difference. As you can imagine, these people were extremely popular right? And if you know your history, Israel at this time was an ongoing insurgency. Only the best of the best commanders got to go there because it was an ongoing active insurgency, and only the best of the best tax collectors got to go there. So when Jesus makes up this story, remember Jesus is telling a story, there is no tax collector, there is no Pharisee. When he creates this character, they would immediately see this character in Jerusalem as super rich, super powerful, and super unpopular. And then he says he's going to the temple to, pay, to pray. And they would laugh because tax collectors don't go to the temple ever. That's a joke. So what we have here basically is we have a, an elder, very respected, and a known criminal. And they're going to the temple to pray. These two guys basically in Jesus' story, they're heading to the afternoon sacrifice about 3 o'clock. A daily sacrifice that took place in the temple. And so how do we get that approval? This story is about those hungry to get God's approval and acceptance. So the Pharisee shows up to get approval from God, and he does it. He says, you know what you got to do? you got to climb up and claim it. Look with me at verses 11 and 12. It says this, The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Note that little phrase there, standing by himself. If, if you have something besides the ESV translation, your, your, yours may say something different. It's actually very vague in Greek where the himself should go. It could be translated, he's praying to himself, like silently, or he's standing by himself as the ESV chooses, or perhaps it could be translated praying about himself. We don't really know. It's not specific. I think Jesus chooses his words very carefully. He's purposely vague to kind of grab all of those meanings because he's trying to reflect the Pharisee's heart. This guy separates himself from everybody else in his heart. He's not praying with these people. He's not praying around these people. And he's not praying for these people. He's better than these people. Why does he separate himself? I'm not, in case you think I'm being a little harsh on him. Well, this verse... And verse 9 tells us, he thought he was better than the others. He looked down on those who did not trust in their own righteousness. And again, that may sound a bit harsh, a bit like a maybe modern, cynical, or skeptical interpretation. I want to take you back 
to the 400s to a pastor from Africa named Augustine. Here's what he said about this parable. He said, The Pharisee was not rejoicing so much in his own clean bill of health as in comparing it with the diseases of others. See, he's coming saying, Lord, look how sick these people are. I'm so much better than them. See, he separates himself from them because he's comparing himself to them. Why is he doing that? Because getting approval is a climb. You have to climb up and grasp God's acceptance. That thirst for glory, that thirst for approval. He's got to climb up and claim it. He thinks he can stand before God at the end of his climb and say, Lord, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than all those people I just passed. Approve me. Which is why he mentions all the stuff he does. He follows the Old Testament commands. He even adds in some stuff on his own. Look, God, I'm doing even more than you asked. Aren't I great? Boys and girls, let's look at your translation, verses 11 and 12. Make sure we understand this Pharisee. Here's how we translate it for the kids. The Pharisee stood alone and prayed out loud. God, I thank you I'm not one of the bad people like this tax collector. I do everything you ask and lots of extra stuff too. I know you notice how good I am. Boys and girls, do you have people in your life who show off a lot? Always trying to look better than everybody else? That's what this Pharisee is doing. And he's wrong, boys and girls. He's trying to climb up and grab something from God. But the Bible tells us God bends down and gives because we can't climb up. And this Pharisee doesn't understand that, boys and girls. And for all of us, let's make sure we don't make an error here. Don't be judgmental towards this Pharisee as he is towards the tax collector. But we are, aren't we? Every time we read this parable, we judge this Pharisee, don't we? You don't have to raise your hand, but I know we do. But you know what? He would be an ideal church member. Any church full of Pharisees like this man would see its budget double or probably triple. Think of all the money for missions. See, when we read this parable, let's make sure we're not being like him. Let's make sure we're not feeling more godly because we're not as boastful and judgmental as he is. Make sure you don't have this attitude of climb up and claim it in your heart. See, his main fault is he thinks his religious behavior and activity earns God's favor. Just like some of us in the room are tempted to think that, well, you know, God will love me more if I tithe or if I go to church faithfully. I may not be perfect, but we're better than those sinners out there. See, that's the Pharisee. He's on the front row. He's active. He's committed. And Jesus is going to tell us that the Pharisee is wrong. But there's another guy here. What does this guy do to find God's approval? Well, he tries the opposite. He decides the best plan is to fall down and beg for it. See, Jesus tells us that the tax collector separates himself too like the Pharisee did. But he's not separating himself from the other worshipers. He's separating himself from God's presence. It seems from the context that the Pharisee went right up into the temple court and did his activity right there, whereas this tax collector, he's hanging back in the outer courts. He's afraid to approach the sanctuary where, in their mind, God actually lived there. So they were, he did not want to come into God's presence. And it was a common practice for people to pray, like many of you received the benediction. 
arms open, eyes up. That was a common posture of prayer. He does not feel worthy to even seek God's face that way, so he won't lift his eyes. He slips into the back after the service starts, hoping to go unnoticed. And then the text tells us in verse 13, he beat his breast. And that part would actually shock the hearers. But not being from an ancient Near East culture, we miss it. About 10, 15 years ago, I had a really good friend named Paul. Paul was born in Iran, so obviously he was Iranian. I met him um, in Colorado, actually. And we got to know each other pretty well. And and we were hanging out doing something, and something really funny happened. And he did this noise that it wasn't a laugh. It made you think of a laugh, but it wasn't a laugh. It was different, something from his culture that I was not aware existed. And me and all my educated cultural sensitivity went, well, that was different. And he kind of looked at me and chuckled and kind of explained to me why you do that. And I said, oh, again, my educated cultural sensitivity. I said, is that like you see on TV where the women kind of get around and they make that crazy chanting noise when something good happens? And he goes, I, I don't know what you're talking about, Sean. I said, you know that la, 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 thing you see on Discovery Channel? And he got this look on his face of fear, looked around, put his voice really low and said, Sean, only women do that. And that's exactly the reaction in this text. Only women beat their breasts and wept out loud like this. Only a woman would do that. This man is acting like a woman and it's indecent. This hated tax collector is so upset he insults and humiliates himself. See, just like the Pharisee, his outward actions reveal his heart. Jesus is going to the extreme in this story to make a point. Look at the man's heart. And I don't know why translations do this. It's so clear in the Greek. He does not say, I am a sinner. He says, I am the sinner. There's a definite article there. Once you think about when a bunch of guys are together and one of the guys does something really cool, really neat, what does somebody inevitably say? You're the man. You have personified manhood, and that's what this sinner says. says, I'm the sinner. I personify sin. See, our friend the Pharisee spoke as if there was no one else on earth as righteous as he was. The tax collector speaks as if there's no one on earth as sinful as he is. Two different hearts, two different attitudes. He confesses his sin, and then he makes a request. It's translated, be merciful to me. This is not the normal way you ask for mercy in the New Testament. In fact, this is not the normal word used in the New Testament. This is the word actually used to describe the sacrifice itself, not the idea of mercy. In fact, it's, it's used one other time in the New Testament to refer to what Jesus did on the cross, a sacrifice. He's asking for a sacrifice. He's not saying, God, be merciful to me. We could almost translate it, God, be a sacrifice for me. It sounds confusing until we remember, where are they in this story? Where has Jesus set this parable? The afternoon sacrifice. The priest kills the animal, puts the blood on the mercy seat, comes out and says, God has accepted the sacrifice. Your sins are forgiven. And it's in that moment the tax collector utters his prayer. Not be merciful to me, but be sacrificed for me. He's a hated outsider. He's just watched Israel receive a reconciliation from a blood sacrifice. And he cries out that the sacrifice given for Israel would somehow be made effective for him because he has nothing else to stand on. 
The sacrifice is declared, Lord, let that be for me. See, the tax collector recognizes God's people have a way of forgiveness, of reconciliation back to God because of their sin. He knows he's not part of that people, and so he falls down and begs for it. God, provide a sacrifice for me too. And the question hanging at this point in the text is, which one of these two men is justified? And for the original hearers, of course, it's the Pharisee. They knew that's how you got right with God. You tried your best to be that person. Everybody knew that's what you got to be like to be accepted by God. That's why the tax collector's back in the corner crying like a girl, because he's not that person. He has no hope to be that person. But then verse 14 comes along. Look with me at verse 14, the first part. What's it say? It says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Jesus says God accepted the tax collector. Remember, this story is about those who looked to their own righteousness. Righteousness being the idea of approval, of acceptance before God. This tax collector was justified. He was declared righteous in God's court. He got the approval. The verdict made him acceptable. And here's where we bring this out of their world and into our world. Remember, the story is about what? What do we trust in for approval, for acceptance in this life? Jesus himself is telling the story to get across that point, and he's telling the story to hint at what he's going to do, how he will be the key for that acceptance, that righteousness, that verdict from God. It says because the key to approval is to look to Christ and rest in it. See, in the context of this parable, exalting yourself means to trust in your own righteousness. Your own ability to get approval from God. Humbling yourself means looking to God to somehow approve you in spite of your sin. And so Jesus says, everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Christ told this story to point to what he would do on the cross. And that's why we're landing on this text of Palm Sunday. Jesus rode into Jerusalem humbling himself before the very sinners who would kill him in order to exalt them with his death and resurrection. This parable then is about two ways to approach God. One way begins above with God. The other begins below with us. One is self-centered and the other one focuses on God himself. One is about what we do and our efforts and the other one It's about what God has done for us in Christ. These two characters in this story are pictures of these two ways of seeking God's approval in our life. We must ask ourselves, do we find within ourselves the ability and the resources to climb up and make that journey to God and get His approval, grasp it and take it? Or is there really nothing to do except grab a hold of God's hand as he gently takes us down a path towards his acceptance and approval? See, one way is about works and one way is about grace. See, in Palm Sunday, the text we read earlier, 
reminds us which way is true. Because God's love came down to earth. Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem to be that sacrifice. He climbed up onto the cross because we couldn't climb up to him. And so Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem humbly on a donkey, claiming no exaltation or merit for himself. He hung on the cross as the sinner, the one who became the sin of God's people. And he died in our place. Jesus died humbling himself on the cross. He was exalted in his resurrection. And as he rises from the grave, taking his place at the right hand of God, he exalts all of his people with him. Oh, Jesus told this story because it was the story of what he would do. Jesus is the only man who did earn righteousness before God. And he did not look down on sinners with contempt like the Pharisee did but rather he willingly came to sinners, becoming the sinner and humbling himself to death to be the sacrifice of mercy the tax collector begged for. True to the promise of verse 14 that he would humble himself and then exalt his people. So this week, as we prepare ourselves for Easter, as the calendar helps us to focus in and say, yes, we talk about the resurrection every Sunday, but we're really going to think about it this week. Do you work yourself to death to gain God's approval? Or was Jesus Christ put to death to give you approval? Where is your anchor for that thirst in your life? Where do you put it? And as you're thinking about this week, I I encourage you to come back at 6 o'clock on Thursday for Monday Thursday service. We're going to have a funeral for Jesus. And we're going to really just think about and meditate on his death and why it was necessary and what it means for us. And then three days later, we're going to gather on Resurrection Sunday morning. And we're going to celebrate with praise and joy from the depths of our heart that Jesus Christ has risen from the grave. I don't know where you are on this question of how do you get God's approval. But I beg you to look to God and recognize that you are the sinner every day and that you need that sacrifice for yourself. And then look once again to Jesus Christ and see that in the gospel he was sacrificed for you that he who knew no sin became sin so that you might become the righteousness of God in him, that you might be exalted when you humble yourself and confess your faith and trust in him. And take this story to heart. Let it enliven your faith yet again this Passion Week. And then I would encourage you to remember that this is one of those times of year when people expect the church invitation. Bring a friend to church next Sunday morning. Bring someone who you're not sure where they are with Christ. We're a team. Let's be a team together. If you bring them, I'll tell them about the resurrection. Okay? And let's spread God's kingdom together. Let's pray. 
Oh, gracious God and Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess that we are hardwired to try to show off for you. We are hardwired, it seems, to want to come and show off our righteousness and what we've done for you. And Lord, we confess it even makes us look down on others and compare ourselves and think we're better. Oh Lord, would you convict us of that? Would you once again show us that we are the sinner? And then would you show us Christ becoming the sinner for us, dying for that sin and being raised for our life? Oh Lord, would you help us once again to see the gospel to embrace the gospel and to be changed by the gospel. We ask you to do this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please?